This is episode number 12 of Ships with critically acclaimed director Anne Bogart. Welcome to Ships. My name is Pat McAndrew, and I am a professional actor, speaker, and coach. In every episode, we discuss a message related to the most important vessels in our lives. Thanks for being here today. Now let's set sail. Welcome to the Ships Podcast. Today's guest is Anne Bogart. Anne Bogart is co-artistic director of the ensemble-based City Company, head of the MFA directing program at Columbia University, and she is the author of five books, including A Director Prepares, The Viewpoints Book, And Then You Act, Conversations with Anne, and What's the Story?, which, in my opinion, is one of the best books ever written on theater. With City Company, Bogart has directed more than 30 works in venues around the world, including The Bacchae, Chess Match No. 5, Steel Hammer, The Theater is a Blank Page, Persians, A Right, Cafe Variations, Radio Macbeth, American Document, and Hotel Casopia. Her many awards and fellowships include three honorary doctorates from Cornish School of the Arts, Bard College, and Skidmore College. She has received a Duke Artist Fellowship, a United States Artist Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Rockefeller Fellowship, and a Robert Rauschenberg Foundation Residency Fellowship. Safe to say, Anne is a powerhouse in the theater directing world. And she offers some great insight, not only into theater, into acting, but also into communicating and relating with one another. We talk a lot about her impressive and inspiring career from when she first started out as a young director all the way up to today as artistic director of City Company. And we also talk about the importance of actors training together. And she also has an amazing theory about how both theater people and non-theater people should train in their college careers. So I really think you'll enjoy this conversation and get a lot out of this. Really soak it in while it lasts. So without further ado, Anne Bogart. Welcome back to the Ships Podcast. Today's guest, we have Anne Bogart with us. Thanks so much for being with us today, Anne. Thanks for having me, Pat. We're very excited to have you on the show. I've been really a big fan of uh, a lot of the work that you've done, the books that you've written, and I'm so excited uh, to dive in today and uh, learn about your experiences and, and just your perspective on theater and the importance of human relationships in today's digital age. So I'm wondering if you could uh, just start out by telling us a little bit about your background. Um, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And what le led you to become the director that you are today? I grew up in a Navy family, which means that we moved every year or every two years. I think the longest place I ever lived was in Japan. And that was two and a half years. Actually, all of my family's Navy. Um, my great, 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 great grandfather was captain of the Minutemen. His um, his musket can be found in the um, in the museum in Lexington, Massachusetts. My grandfather on my mother's side was in charge of the Pacific Fleet during the Second World War, and in uh, and is credited for credited for winning the Battle of Midway. And he's played by Glenn Ford in the movie Midway. Not a very good movie, but yeah. And so he, his strength was, uh, and there's a lot of books written about him. His last name was Spruance. His name was Raymond Ames Spruance. And a lot of people don't know him because he was quiet. There's actually a book about him called The Quiet Warrior. And whereas a lot of generals and admirals like uh, General MacArthur would restage uh, battles just to make sure it was on record. My grandfather always said, 
there's no room for a photographer on the flagship. He just was anti-PR. And even though he was on the cover of Time magazine, he, um, he was known as a great strategist and a very quiet man. And as a matter of fact, uh, during battles in the Pacific during the Second World War, apparently he would go to sleep during battles. And he and somebody would knock at the door and say, uh, "Admiral, Admiral, um, a submarine has been sunk." And he'd say, "Why did you wake me up?" And they said, "But a submarine, a Japanese have, have sunk a submarine." And he'd say, uh, "You know what to do. We've worked it all out on paper." He was a great strategist, and I always related that as a theater director. You don't stop a play in the middle of the play and say, uh, "Excuse me, we need to talk to the director to fix it." Or, or, or change strategy is that as a director you need to be a strategist. So I, I like to think that I, um, in his shoes, have followed in a very different, uh, very non-military campaign of, of my own, which is to to be the kind of director that um, that that can create strategies for actors to take over, if you know what I mean. So that. The, the production becomes theirs. But anyway, so in moving around every year, I found that in most schools, there was a little area, usually the uh, what they call the cafetorium, which is where plays happened, lunch and plays. At one end of every auditorium, there would be a little stage. And the, there would be a group of people who would get together with a teacher or what have you and do a play. You'd do something, there'd be love in it and excitement, and then it was over, and then you'd never see them again. That was very much like my life. I would move every year, get really involved with people, and then never see them again. So the theater was somehow a, a, um, a way to do that in, a, in my own sort of more intense way. I never wanted to act, so I was always backstage or looking for props <clears throat> during uh, class time with a prop you know, with a, a a note from the teacher saying she needs to find props so I get out of classes to do things like that. But I never acted really, or as little as I possibly could. <clears throat> and then when I was 15, um, I was uh, asked by my French teacher, a woman named Jill Warren, who was the only, this was in, in, in Middletown, Rhode Island, in a pretty horrible school called Middletown High School. And, um, uh, my teacher, Jill Warren, was a French teacher, and she was the only sort of enlightened person in the school, as far as I could see. She 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 introduced art films to me. I had never seen anything except for Disney movies up to then, and and she decided to direct the the Bald Soprano by Eugenie Inesco in nineteen sixty five. I was no sixty seven. I was fifteen years old, and to do. The Bald Soprano by a Romanian um, uh, writer who wrote in French, and we did it in English, of course, from the Theater of the Absurd, was incredible because the school I was going to, we were used to doing plays like Charlie's Aunt or Brigadoon or things like that. And so anyway, I was her assistant, and um, or whatever that meant, which was basically hanging around and helping out. But um, what happened was a week and a half before we were to perform in the cafetorium, the place that, the, where theater smelled like lunch, uh, she called me and said, um, I have the flu. You have to take over. And so I had to not only take over directing, but also figure out what a, an absurdist play was. And uh, all the right things happened, which was there was a boy named Jimmy Cometa who was playing Mr. Smith, and he and I had a thing going on, chased around after each other, so there was love. And the most important thing is it was a success. And that was what determined that I would be, from then on for the rest of my life, a theater director. Wow. That's incredible. And how old did you say you were at the time again? Fifteen. Wow. So you're yeah. 15 years old, and, and really this whole world opened up to you. Yeah, yeah, that's what decided it. And really from that experience, were you pretty much dead set on always being a director from there on since you weren't very interested in acting or, or were you ever interested in any other theatrical disciplines? I was only interested in directing. The other thing that happened when I was 15 is that um, living in Rhode Island at the time, there was a company, and still exists to this day, a very strong acting company called Trinity Repertory Company in Providence. And they had a young artistic director named Adrian Hall. And 
Adrian Hall in 1967 did something extraordinary, and he must have been in his 20s then. He went to Washington, D.C. and marched into the office of the newly formed National Endowment of the Arts. And he said, I want $1 million to bring every school kid in Rhode Island in to see the theater in my theater. And $1 million in 1967 is like, I don't know, $150 million now. And so every school kid from Rhode Island was brought into Providence on, in a yellow school bus. And I was one of those kids. I'd never seen a professional production before. This was when I'd been doing theater in high school. And <clears throat> the first play I saw was the Scottish play. And um, I remember sitting in the audience. And the set design was by, I later found out, Eugene Lee, who still designs for Saturday Night Live and a lot of other theater things. And so the witches were coming out of the ceiling and the, the actors were 360 degrees around me. I was within with a theater group of about a thousand kids, all of us around 15, 16, 14 years old. And I didn't understand a word that was being spoken because it was Shakespeare. I'd never heard it before. And so I sat there, also 15, and when it was over, it was my whole being pointed towards what I had just experienced. And I said, that's it. Whatever that is, is what I want to do. And it was the first lesson I got from Adrian Hall as a director. I didn't meet him until 25 years later when I became the second artistic director of Trinity Rep. But that's a whole other story before I was, I was there for one year before I was fired by the board. But that's a completely different story. Anyway, as a 15-year-old, the lesson he taught me <clears throat> from, from his um, vantage point was, Never talk down to your audience. He could have taken that million dollars, that equivalent of $150 million, and brought in any kind of kid's schlock and then taken the money and did what he wanted. But with his company of incredible actors and designers, he made a production which was so challenging right from their guts. And as a 15-year-old, I didn't understand it. And so I learned that theater is not about understanding. I had to take every ounce of my 15-year-old body and soul and mind and emotions and try to reach towards this thing I didn't understand. And I realized that the theater and art in general is about not understanding necessarily, but bringing yourself towards something you don't understand and being altered by it forever. So that was a great lesson to learn as a director. So those two <clears throat> events in my when I was 15 conspired to... Um, to make me decide to be a theater director. Wow. Yeah, almost like these two uh, uh, epiphany moments that really led you on a certain path. Absolutely. And very changed my direction. Cho cha you know, <clears throat> to totally changed where I was headed. I think you get moments in your life where you, you get to a crossroads where you have an experience. I've had about seven of those in my life where you have an experience where you actually have to give up everything you've decided before and immediately go in the direction of what excites you. It's where your heart beats faster, where you experience something and you, and you give up your previous plans and you, you take a new, new route. And that was, that was definitely the first one. And what were you planning on doing before you decided to go the theater director route? Well, being a 15-year-old kid, you, you, do, you plan on doing what your parents expect you to do, which was at that time, in my family, on all, both sides, all of the girls became Navy wives and all of the men became Naval officers. So I was being primed to become a Naval wife. And did, did you deciding to study theater and directing, were your, were your parents supportive of that idea? Were they um, intrigued by it or were they very turned off by that? They were puzzled. And, and because all of the, their interest, and it's natural for Navy families, go towards the men. So my two brothers, what their decisions were more important than mine were to the to my parents. So my parents were puzzled, but they were also supportive. They they laughed. They didn't understand it, but they never really put up any terrible roadblocks in my way. Mostly because so little was expected of any girl coming from my family. And and so after graduating high school, uh, I assume then you went off to school. Well, <clears throat> I decided uh, after those experiences that I wanted to go to a great women's college. These were the days when 
places like Vassar and Sarah Lawrence and all those places were women's colleges. I wanted to become a director and go to a great women's college. I didn't do the math about where the men actors coming from, but I just, that's what I wanted to do. So I applied to where my mother had gone, which was Vassar. And I applied to where I really wanted to go, which was Sarah Lawrence. I applied to Bennington, Sweetbriar, uh, a bunch of places. And I got turned down from all of them. And I was pretty devastated because I wanted to be a theater director. And I ended up going in my first year of college to a place that would take you if you could sign the check. It was a junior college, doesn't exist anymore, called Briarcliff College. And there I spent the year directing, <coughs> excuse me, directing every play that was there. And also I had a boyfriend. I didn't know my sexuality at that time. It's changed since then. But I had a boyfriend who was going to Princeton at the time. And he was the only hippie at Princeton. And it was the year of Kent State. So I ended up directing plays at the silly college called Briarcliff and going to see my boyfriend at um, at Princeton, where I was got involved in politics through him. But uh, there was no way I could consider going to a second year at this junior college. It was so dumb. It was what they call a suitcase college, where all the girls go to see their boyfriends on the weekends, which is what I did too. So I decided, okay, while I was at Briarcliff, I said, I'm going to apply. I want to go to a great conservatory. I want to become a theater director. I want to come to go to a conservatory. So I, I applied to the then forming Cal Arts, which I actually went for an interview in, in, in LA. I applied to Carnegie Mellon, sort of every major conservatory. And again, I was turned down from all of them. And I was completely devastated and had no intention going back for a second year at Briarcliff. So I ended up going to school in Athens, Greece for a year in a program uh, where you study Greek history, archaeology, Greek, modern Greek language, and theater history. I didn't direct it all, but I learned more about the theater from, um, from being in, in that situation. Had an extraordinary time in Greece, learned modern Greek, spent a lot of time escaping from the school in Athens to go to different parts of, uh, of Greece, became completely enamored with the culture of Greece, the history of Greece. But again, it was a one-year program, and so I thought, I've got to get, I want to, I guess I have to really keep going to college. So I ended up then going for one semester to Emerson, which is a much better school now than it was then. And then I ended up at Bard College, where I was for two and a half years and loved it. It took me five years to get through undergrad, and Bard was the place where I could, I just directed the entire time. It's all I did. I just got there and directed, worked in the... Um, cafeteria. And while I was cleaning dishes at the end of the night, I would talk the people, the, the students who were sitting around after dinner into being in my plays and just kept directing until I graduated. So it took me four, four colleges. It took me four colleges to get through school. That's amazing. It like, well, it, it's really a testament to how determined you were to, you know, go to school and, and really start this career as a theater director. And, and in your experience at Bard, how essential was it to be able to be in an environment where you have the opportunity to direct very often? Well, directing is about directing as often as you can. And I've always been a bit against assistant directing. I always tell my students to avoid it because you avoid the crisis of your own rehearsal. So I was in different crises for two and a half years. Plus, there were pretty amazing faculty who taught there, too. And there was one person in particular, a woman named Roberta Sklar, who was co-director at those days with Joseph Chaikin and the Open Theater. And she said to me before I graduated, she said, oh, okay, Anne, so what you do is you go to New York now when you graduate, you get yourself a company and a writer and you start to work. And it was things like that where I really did get guidance. Uh, I also had a, <laughs> I, a, when I first got to Bard, the person who ran the theater program was a director from England, English guy <clears throat> named Bill Driver, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But he... Um, I was very excited to see it was my fourth college and finally on the curriculum I saw that there was a class on directing and of course I was the first to sign up I was so excited and Bill Driver was to direct it it was to teach the class and so I thought finally somebody's going to teach me how to do this thing I've been doing in my life and I have no idea what I'm doing so on the first day of class I, I had my pen 
in my hand, in my notebook, I was ready to learn about directing. And Bill Driver came in in those days. They do things like that. He came in with his coffee and his cigarette. And he said in his English accent, it's impossible to teach directing. We shall begin with Pau Gint. We'll divide it into six. There were six of us in the class. Each of you do will do one sixth of it. And I'll see you on opening night. And I was a little disappointed. Wow. But I must say, you know, he was, he was, he oversaw my directing from a bit of a distance from my time at Bard. And in my senior project, I did a production of something called kin Kinetics, I think I called it. It was, I took all these little excerpts from Eugene Ionesco, and again, that name comes up, his plays, and put together sort of an evening of collage of, of, of Ionesco's work into a, production. It was very, were very devised, I would say, at that time, though, though that word didn't exist. And uh, in, in technical rehearsals, I was in rehearsal and Bill Driver came in and I thought, oh my God, because he'd never come to a rehearsal and, and I had never gotten much guidance from him except just as a model, as a person. He came in, he stayed for about three or four minutes. And then he walked up to me and he said, come to see me in my apartment when you're finished. Again, this doesn't happen in schools these days, but uh, I finished at around 11. I went to his apartment. <clears throat> I knocked on his door. He opened the door and he handed me a glass of scotch. Doesn't happen anymore. And <clears throat> we sat down and he proceeded to tell me everything that he had noticed in those three or four moments, things that I'm still working on to this day, things that he got, he saw. And that I don't know, I don't really know how long I sat with him drinking scotch, but that session was the most profound directing lesson I ever had. He just got it all. Or maybe I could say he'd watched my work for a couple of years, but it was an extraordinary evening I'll never forget. And would you say that that sort of meeting, would you describe it as, as a mentorship, even though it might have just been one meeting, or was it multiple meetings that you had with him? No, it was just that one meeting. <laughs> Other than that, he was a benevolent presence. Um, and also, as I say, a model, because I liked his work as a director very much. I admired it. But, but until that night, I never got any direct feedback about my directing in my whole life. Hadn't. Wow. And so... Then once you graduated from school and um, I, I, you were in New York City, correct? Well, not directly. What happened was um, wh while I was at Bard College, a, a very handsome man by the name of Ashen Cameron, who everybody on campus was a bit in love with, decided to form a company. And um, he had auditions for it. And because I was one of those hundred people a little bit in love with him, I auditioned in a way that I never intended, but as an actor, he was directing it. Long story short, I got in and we ended up, um, I think in the, in the summer before my senior year at Bard, he, he, he had felt like he was going to leave the theater unless this one possible savior for the theater could possibly be true. He had read Jerzy Grotowski's book, Towards a Poor Theater. Uh, and he yeah. based this company I joined on this book, Towards a Poor Theater. And for the first um, six months of our work, we would meet every morning at eight in the morning, Monday through Friday, and go through these torturous physical training sessions. We had to each make our own score. And so I was, I guess you could say, acting in that. But it was, um, and then at the end of that six months, he said, he said, this is very elitist, and what we need to do is to bring theater to the people. That's what one said in those days. And we got in his van, and for three months we traveled around Canada and the United States, essentially, quote, bringing theater to the people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, That's amazing. Where, was there like a specific show that you were No, doing? and I'll tell you what I learned, though, was we, we, one of our first, we would just jump out of the van and start improvising. We had themes and stuff, but I'll, I'll never forget, we got out of the van in Montreal, and we all started improvising, and people started coming up and like gawking at us until, and this was a great lesson, some guy comes up, and within earshot of everybody else who's listening, he looks for a little while, and then he goes, oh, theater. And then he walks away and everybody else walked away. <laughs> and I 
thought, oh, as long as it, <laughs> it's viable, it, it contain, you know, it, it, it actually fascinates enough, you know. Um, but it was very instructive doing that. And then at the end of the summer, there were seven of us, and I think four of the seven actors quit. I just stayed on because I'm, I'm stubborn. And we ended up doing a show that um, uh, uh, called The Tower of Babel First Story, which was about sexuality. And we ended up being invited to do it in um, at St. Mark's Church in what became later. It was then called Theater Genesis. It was the little theater connected to St. Mark's on, on 10th Street and 2nd Avenue that that later became, um, much, much later became um, uh, Richard Foreman's theater. Anyway, we're invited by the Theater Genesis, which was started by Sam Shepard, to perform there as these like college kids graduating from college. And we went to perform there and we could barely get an audience, but we did get this couple from India who came and they had a theater company in India and they invited us to come to India after we were finished with school and perform. And they would sponsor us to go to the Kathakali school in the South of India. Long story short, we didn't make it to India. We made it to, uh, because I'd lived in Greece, we decided that I would go ahead. And since I spoke Greek, at least I did in those days, I don't really anymore, but uh, I would find a deserted island where we would make a new piece, a second piece. We did that and Ashen Cameron got very sick we ended up taking him to Israel because there were better hospitals there. And finally, literally on a war-torn hospital, uh, Tel Hashemer, in the worst time of Israel, this doctor finally came in and said, this boy has to go home. And I was there. I had worked that summer to earn money to make this big trip. And I thought, I've graduated from Bard. I'm going to be, I'm going to go to the Kathakali school. I'm going to travel the world. And I worked as a night cook in a seafood restaurant called Jean's Clam Shack in Newport, Rhode Island. And I, I got $3,000 in what used to be called traveler's checks. Now, $3,000 in traveler's checks is a lot of money. It might be true that my parents probably gave me some of it, but most of it was from my job. And <clears throat> so my plan was to be away from the States for years with this $3,000 of traveler's checks. There were no ATMs back there. And I'll never forget being in um, Israel, in Tel Aviv, and we had to send Ashen home. And the theater company had broke up, broken up, the one I'd been part of. And I said, I can go anywhere in the world that I want to go. I can go to India. I can go anywhere. I have this money. And I thought, the only place I want to go is New York City. Like, so literally got on a plane and landed in New York with what was left of my $3,000, which was probably 2000 something by that time, because we'd been away for a couple of months. And um, that, that, the, the words of my teacher, Roberta Sklar, which is go to New York, get a company, get a writer, and start to work, were ringing in my ears. And I looked around New York, which seemed very imposing to me. I didn't know it. I had visited it to see theater from Bard and but I didn't know New York. And uh, I found this one part of New York that in interested me the most, which was this area called Soho, which is not a retail surplus mall that it is now. It was actually a place where artists worked and they were mostly um, <clears throat> big lofts or else uh, trucking depots. And uh, the one restaurant in Soho in those days was called, this is 1964, uh, sorry, 1974, there was a restaurant called Food on Prince Street. And there, were, there, there, used to, there was a bulletin board there because there was no such thing as an internet in those days. And on the bulletin board, there was a sign that said that somebody was looking for a roommate on Grand Street. So I went to this loft and it was this couple who had a loft that had three bedrooms, a living room, a dining room, and a dance studio. And the the rent the rent for the entire on on Grand Street between um, Broadway and uh, 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 what's the next one I just forgot anyway off of Broadway, and uh, it was the rent for that for all of us was three hundred and twenty five dollars a month, and um, so I got a bedroom and, uh, and 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 within a month the couple had moved out. And I and so I could have my friends in. My friends from Bard moved in, and so I had this place, which was a a loft. There was no heat, I have to tell you, but it was three bedrooms, living room, dining room, and kitchen, and dance studio. And so 
I asked around New York, and I was working all these odd jobs. I like worked on Wall Street, and I worked. Uh, I was um, the expense analyst on Wall Street. I was uh, worked in the collections department of a water company, things like that. And I asked around. I said, "How do you find actors to be in a company?" And people said, "Oh, what you do is you put an ad in Backstage magazine." So I put an ad in, <clears throat> and it said. Actors interested in a study of assassination and murder using Shakespeare's Macbeth call this number. Um, and for some reason, the other rag of the day, this is again, as I say, pre-internet, was the showbiz magazine. They liked the ad, so for free, they picked it up. And I started getting phone calls to my lo the loft I was living in. And to this day, I have a fear of analog phone sound because it would ring all the time. And all these actors would call and say that they were interested in my ad. And I, I, I had forgotten to say in the ad that there was no money. So half the people would hang up. Other half wanted to audition. So, <clears throat> so I was terrified, of course, because it was my first show in New York. And... Um, so what I did is I had actors come in one at a time, and I set up a table in the um, in the in the dance studio that I could sit behind and hold on to, so that the actors wouldn't see that I was shaking. I was so scared. And one at a time they would come, and I would interview them for whatever reason I don't know to this day. And I would also have them read a poem by Sylvia Plath called "Daddy." I also don't know why I had that done, but I'll never forget that there was one guy who came in to interview slash audition. And he was twice my age. And I looked at his resume and he had off Broadway, off, off Broadway, television, advertisement, you know, commercials, uh, film, like he'd done everything. And he had a little bit of alcohol in his breath. And at one point he burst out crying and he said, I just want to do something that means something. And that was like looking into the Pandora's box of, the actor's condition in New York City is from that moment on, I've always had an incredible respect for what actors go through to get hired, to, to eke out a life. It was a real education. That was how I started in New York. Wow. That's incredible. And I, I always hear, um, you know, just through the, the people that I talk with, the importance of creating your own work and, from what it sounds like in your experience, that was of the utmost importance when starting out. Yeah, I think you do. You you actually create your career in the early part of your career. A lot of a lot of I think false directing information is that you're supposed to wait until you've gotten the chops, or wait until you, you know, have done enough assisting, or wait until you know the right people until you do the things you really want to do. I think that's the worst advice anybody could ever give to anybody. And so was there a certain point in your career, you're, you're, you know, you're creating this company, you're uh, collaborating with actors and other artists. Was there a certain point where you really started to find your footing with creating work and directing work? No, I've never really found my footing. I'm always struggling, but I did, I, I did, um, I did a lot of work in what what, what we now call site-specific, but it was more because I couldn't get a theater. I went to all the sort of small theaters around the downtown area, and they would look at my resume, which was basically college productions, and they would say no, no, because I wanted a job in a theater. Until finally, I went to um, Theater for the New City, not to be confused with Theater for the New Audience. Theater for the New City, which had been around for a long time, run by uh, <coughs> George Bartanyuk and Crystal Field at the time, the two of them. And I had a meeting with George Bartanyuk. I said, you know, I've got these actors and I'm working. By this time, I was living in Brooklyn in a, a, a townhouse near, near, this was like now 76 or 77, it was near a townhouse. It was a townhouse near near Bam now, but it was really rotten neighborhood in those days. And I got a with my best friend. I found a a townhouse also for three hundred and twenty five dollars a month for the entire townhouse, all the floors. It was that cheap back then. Three hundred. Wow. I know. Anyway, so that's I was, amazing. And and I was rehearsing with some actors, and I kept going to all these theaters trying to get booked in a theater. 
And so finally, George Partenyev said, you know, Crystal has been talking about turning the prop room into a theater. So why don't you use the prop room? So I went back to uh, to the, the four actors I was working with then. And I said, oh, my God, we have a real New York theater. We're going to be off off Broadway in theater for New City. I'm so excited. And uh, so we rehearsed like mad. We were rehearsing. I was taking all these texts from Harold Pinter and putting it into a kind of what we call now devised work. And about a week before we were supposed to start performing, I went back to Theater for New City and I found George Bartanyev, who I could see when I he saw me coming, he started to look askance. And I went up to him, I said, do you remember me? We're going to perform in your prop room next week. And he looked guilty and he said, well, Crystal has decided not to change the prop room into a theater, so I'm sorry. And I went back to the four actors and I broke the horrible news that we didn't have a place to perform. And one of them quit. But the ones who stayed, the three actors who stayed, we were all super young, now have now careers. Like Dee Dee O'Connell is one of them, who's like one of the best off-Broadway actors and does a lot of film. Anyway, we were all super young. But I didn't have a place to perform. And my roommate in Brooklyn kept saying, we have the house. Why don't you perform in the house? And I kept saying, nobody's want to come to Brooklyn, because that was before anybody ever thought Brooklyn was a destination. And plus, I don't want to perform in a house. I want to perform in a theater. But I had no choice. And then I had a friend who had a truck. And she said she would bring audiences from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And so I put an ad in, a tiny little ad in the Village Voice, which existed then as a very important paper. It's not anymore. And it said, tiny little ad, it said, if you want to see this, this production, which I then called Inhabitat, come to the corner of LaGuardia Place and 3rd Street and um, you'll go to see this play. So what would happen is, is the, the truck would pull up. There was no windows in the truck and we had a maximum audience number of 35. And so 35 people would get into the back of the truck, not knowing where they're going, be taken over the Brooklyn Bridge to Fort Greene Place, which is where I lived. They'd get out of the truck and at the, the brownstone at the top of the steps, going into the house, Dee Dee O'Connell would stand there in a, with a puffer jacket and a two, two, um, two bags of groceries, and she did her first speech, which was from an Irene Fornes play, to the audience from there, and then the audience would go in, and this was before site-specific or immersive existed, and the audience would go all over the house and see all the scenes in the different rooms in the three stories of the house, and it ended up in the big kitchen, and anyway, it became a kind of cult hit. And John Cage came to see it. And he would tell his friends about it. And he'd say things like, the sound of the dogs barking outside, mixing with the scenes on the inside. And I was thinking, I don't want dogs barking. I just want to play. I want to do a play. <laughs> but for some reason, that, that really caught on. It became a thing. And there was a lot written about it at the time. Like, uh, and... and uh, and I got this uh, reputation for doing what's now called site-specific work, which I did a lot of. I did a lot of theater in, you know, abandoned schoolhouses, detective offices, rooftops of buildings. But in doing that, I learned how to deal with a set because you could get like incredible sets in New York City, uh, scenery that you couldn't possibly afford, sides of buildings, you know, the sky behind so I learned a lot doing that. Um, so you know, I've, I, it, it took a long time to 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 gain any sort of momentum. But then what happened is um, I saw a film of a German play. This is a long story. I'll just t turn it into three sentences. But I was so enamored by this production that was on film that I ended up learning German, stealing all of their. Um, techniques. It was mostly the Schaubühne in Berlin and the direction of Peter Stein. And uh, after two years of stealing everything that I could from German theater, I got invited. There was a huge article written in Theater Heute, which is a big German magazine, about my work because a lot of Germans would come to see it since when you're interested in something, it comes back at you. I ended up then leaving the States and working in German-speaking countries for a couple of years in, in Germany, in, in Switzerland, in Austria, 
trying to pretend like I was not American. But what I learned from working over there is that I'm like very American. I have an American sense of humor, American history. And so since then, most of my work has been about discovering what American culture is. Interesting. And, and what was it about this German film that really caught your attention? It, yeah, it was a, a film of, um, of a Gorky play called that we know as Summer Folk. Uh, if anybody doesn't know it, you should see it. It's one of the best ensemble plays. It's, you know, it, it, it rivals Chekhov. Um, and it was done originally by the Schaubühne in Berlin as a play, and then it was filmed on location. And what I saw is something I didn't see in any American theater. It was really funny, but it would be sort of stupid and ugly, or it would be really, really smart, but it wouldn't be political, or it wouldn't be, it would have no humor, or you'd see something really beautiful, but it had no heart. You know, even in the avant-garde, there was this, this stratification. And in this film, I saw it as a theater piece, which did all of it. It was some of the most extraordinary acting I'd ever seen. The emotionality, the, the level of politics was amazing. The intellectual rigor inside of it, the historical sensibilities, the, the, the sense of beauty. You know, it, I'd never seen any theater piece do all of the things at the same time. And I wanted to learn from that. Because usually in, in, in our world, it's you uh, capitalize on one aspect of your work instead of putting it all together. It's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And with so much of your experience that you've done with site-specific work, would you say that there's a, a certain benefit or advantage to doing site-specific work over working in a traditional theater space that you find as a director? You know, it's the best training you can possibly have as a director because you're you're not only dealing with actors in your rehearsal you're dealing with architecture you're dealing with live action you know you're dealing with god's choreography around it there it's because you have to juggle so many things i actually with my directing students at columbia i always make sure that one of their assignments is site specific so that they can really deal with what it means to to um to juggle so much information. So I think formatively it's really useful. And then you, you learn how, how to use a set, a setting so that when you're working with a set designer, it's informed, you know, you, you, you learn about scale and um, you learn about what speaking in public means. I mean, really in public. So it's, it's a great training tool, I think. Yeah. And I imagine it just allows them to really experiment in a creative way that, they wouldn't otherwise have working in the a traditional sense. That's correct. Yep, exactly. So I'd really love to dive in and talk a little bit about your work with uh, City Company and specifically uh, your work in Viewpoints and Suzuki. I'm, I'm very curious as to how you delved into these two forms and how they become so central to, um, to your company. Well... I I was exposed to the viewpoints through the choreographer Mary Overly, who was a friend of mine, who uh, we both taught at NYU Experimental Theater Wing when we were too young to be doing so, but we did. And she had really developed something called the six viewpoints. In those days, it was six view, there was two words, viewpoints. And we co-directed together and we worked together. And she introduced me to what she had come up with that was very much inspired from her exposure to the Judson Church era movement, the, the choreographers of that time. <clears throat> she really went into her herself and asked herself, what are the elements that make up her performance? And the viewpoints would make them co-creators. So as opposed to being waiting, waiting to be told what to do, they make... Uh, they make choices using the, the, the tools of time and space. Mary um, went off to, uh, to Austria and a whole bunch of places in Europe, kind of disappeared for a couple of years. And I kind of just kept exploring with the viewpoints. And much to her chagrin and sometimes delight, uh, uh, I, sort of, I got a, a, a reputation for actually taking them and I guess in her mind bastardizing them. I changed them all the time. She came back from Europe and was a little bit angry that I had um, 
had had taken her work into new directions. And I think she's probably right. I should have changed the name of it. But at any rate, it was something I was working with with actors, and it would be you'd be able to put a company together very fast because it's a technique that turns everybody into a creator in the room. Uh, the person I admired the most in the world and continue to admire the most in the world is a woman named Ariane Mushkin, who's the artistic director of the Théâtre du Soleil in Paris, not to be confused with the Cirque du Soleil, it has nothing to do with Cirque du Soleil, Théâtre du Soleil. And um, she's a woman who's a generation older than I am, and I've always looked up to her as somebody who created a company and did the most extraordinary work that I would travel anywhere in the world to see that always inspired and engaged me completely. And so I ended up in a conversation with her once um, in Berlin. I mean, she to this day doesn't know, she doesn't know I'm the same person who's come up to her for 30 years and always said, thank you, thank you. But I did end up actually having a real conversation with her once, which I was on my knees and my face was red. We're speaking French and she was sitting in a chair and I finally asked her what I really wanted to know. And I asked her, what, what about this company thing? And she looked at me very sternly and said, well, what are you going to do without a company? I mean, don't get me wrong. They bring you grief. There's always problems and people are leaving. But what are you going to do without a company? And I had this epiphany in that moment where I realized that every great production I've ever seen of theater or dance was always by a company with no exception. And so it was in that moment that I knew that I needed a company. So w w what you do in those circumstances is that whenever I had the opportunity to talk or do an interview, somebody would say, what do you want? I'd say a company. And so the first company I got was actually Trinity Repertory Company, which I inherited from uh, Adrian Hall, who was the director who turned me on to theater when I was 15. Uh, and um, I only lasted one year there before I was fired by the board. And what I learned was that you can't inherit somebody else's company. In other words, these were incredible actors who had been brought into existence by Adrian Hall and that I couldn't just walk in and become somebody else's, you know, another company's artistic director. And then the Japanese director, Tadashi Suzuki, had proposed to me to start a uh, an initiation in the United States that would sort of mirror what he does in Japan. And I agreed, and this became the city company. Um, we started as a summer company in Saratoga Springs, which is why the original name of city was the Saratoga International Theater Institute. We are not, we don't live in Saratoga. We're not an institute. So that name doesn't work at all. But so we city company. And what happened was the first summer we were together, uh, was a group of actors who had worked with Suzuki or had done his training. We went to Japan to the what they call the, the Japanese Alps, where he has a compound, incredible compound of theater. Theaters and uh, theater makers meet there. And we rehearsed a play. And the actors all had Suzuki training, and I brought with me uh, the viewpoints. And soon afterwards, the actors met in New York after we'd done our first production in the uh, in a diner. And they said, what does it mean to be a city company member? And they said, we train together and we train in both Suzuki and viewpoints. And that's always been a foundation for what the company is. As a matter of fact, we were in Dublin a number of years ago. We were in Dublin at the Dublin festival. We were doing two different productions there. We were doing uh, Bob Rauschenberg America and Radio Macbeth or something like that. And the week after that, we came to BAM to open the New Wave Festival with Hotel Casibilla. And the week after that, we were in Los Angeles doing War of the Worlds. And I was walking with my friend uh, Jocelyn Clark, who's a, um, a critic and a writer who I work with a lot. And he's from Ireland. He's from Dublin. We were walking around the festival and I said, how is this possible that we can pull this off to do two plays here this week? Uh, open a play at BAM the next week and then go to LA the following week and hold together. And he said, the reason is very simple. I said, what? He said, it's because your actors train together. And I thought, I think that is why we've lasted 27 years is because they have this constant dialogue through, through the training, which they do before every rehearsal, before every performance. And it's, it's a, it's kind of the um, foundation upon which they sit. And do you find that, at least in the performances that 
you know, you've seen throughout your lifetime, why the ones that belong to theater companies tend to be more resonant with you is because those actors train together, whereas that's not not usually the case with a lot of other productions. But even if they don't train together, they have become a social system. They've become a <clears throat> they've come, become a model society because they've been together. Because ultimately, what the play, what theater asks is, how can we get along better? And every play asks that not only on the level of the play, what the playwright's written, but on the level of how the actors are behaving with one another. And so that that question, what, why those companies feel so great and so important is that they ha they are proposing different ways of being together as a group yeah it's um it, it's there's something that's very communal about this and something that i'm always looking to pursue in my work is how can theater practices how could actor training be applied to other industries um in, in your work is there um really anything that you know you've experienced whether it's your time as an emerging director or through city company that you think oh you know maybe this business would really benefit from this type of training or maybe this would do really well in um an education setting or a medical setting even uh, has that like thought ever um come up or or is that something that um you know, with this, you know, thinking about this idea of actors training together and the benefit that comes from that, is there any way that other industries could sort of borrow that? Well, you know, I have a theory. I think that um, in undergraduate, you know, everybody now goes to, to, to grad school, it seems, in the theater. Like that seems to be, it didn't, when I was growing up, grad school was not so important. Now it really is, or seems to be. So here's my theory. In undergraduate, anybody who's going to end up going to the theater should not study theater. You should study philosophy or social history or psychology. And that everybody who's going to become a banker or a doctor or pretty much anything else should all be undergraduate theater majors. Because I think that theater training is what trains you how to function in a group and to function successfully and to thrive. So, and so I think that then when you go to grad school, you should switch. So those people who are interested in the theater who've now been studying history, philosophy, psychology, etc., should now go to grad school in their field, in acting, directing, what have you. And the vice versa, those who are going to become bankers, etc., who've had four years of theater training should now go to grad school in business school or medical school, etc., that's how I think it should go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would absolutely agree with you on that because the the skill sets that we learn in the theater are so uh, uh, applicable to really, I, I would argue, almost any industry. And I, I really like this theory of yours that those who are looking to pursue a career outside of the theater should take four years of theater training. It's it's a that's amazing. I absolutely agree with that. And the theater people should stay away. They need to learn things about the world, you know, so that when they come to the training, they, they bring with them a pretty vast knowledge because their, their, their ethics and their values and their, <clears throat> their intellectual rigor all shows in their acting or directing or designing. Do you feel that a lot, a lot of actors kind of fall into a trap of, um, you know, maybe acting habits because of so many years of uh, teachers or directors telling them that they have to do something a certain way or approach something a certain way? Yeah, but that's that's called habit, and that's the enemy of every person alive. It's not just that. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious. Um, I, I would love for you to elaborate this on this a little bit, specifically in today's age where we're all very consumed by technology, very digitally connected. Uh, you have this one quote in your in your book, What's the Story, that says the phone seems to act as a medium between the observer and the observed, cutting off direct experience, authentic encounter, and any chance of arrest. The phone captures the work of art and takes it hostage. 
when I was reading your book, this really jumped out to me a lot. And I'm wondering if you could uh, just elaborate on on that and and what the presence in this you know digital age of this phone always being at our sides, uh, what it means for art in general. It's it's hypnotized us, and 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 I think our task is to become unhypnotized. And you know there was there was an article about. Um, prices in the theater, how it's so expensive to go to the theater right now. And believe me when I say this, I am not for expensive tickets. I actually think it's a big problem. But one of the one of the reasons why tickets are so expensive, people are saying, is that the actual immediate experience of being in the room with people is so radical that it's becoming so desired that it's now costing so much money for tickets. I think there's something wonderful about that. Not about the price of tickets, but the, the theater is becoming an alternative to our overly digitalized society and is an act of resistance against it. And it's become precious in a sense. Yeah, and the, the value of people coming together and experiencing something together is becoming more and more rare. Mm -hmm. And so how, how would you say the phone takes art hostage? Well, in the case that I was talking about in the book is that it, it, I've always noticed that in museums, people take a lot of pictures of, of, of amazing paintings. And the minute, if you watch in a museum, the minute the photo's taken, they don't look at the picture again. They don't look at the actual, they actually look at it, then they take a picture and then they move on. And the, the, the direct experience of art is mitigated and reduced to a, session, a sense of possession or owning. And I think the last thing you want to do is own a, a work of art, is that you actually want to be in its presence and be altered by it. And that's very difficult to do with a phone. I guess because the, the phone is always taking us out of the present. Yeah, yeah. It's a, for, it's a distraction, actually. And how do you think that inhibits us as as actors, as directors, or as artists? As artists, you need a strong concentration, and it's taking away any kind of concentration. In your book, you also discuss uh, this idea of Kronos versus Kairos, and how uh, today our society is hyper-focused on Kronos and not so much on Kairos. And so what can we do as a society to really focus more on Kairos? Slow down. And are there specific ways? Because I, I think that um, this is so true. We really do need to slow down. But especially in New York City, where people are always running all over the place, and they have this long agenda of to-do lists. How, how can those people who feel like they have so much they have to get done really take that time to slow down? Well, I think the first thing to do is to never use the word busy. How often do you say, how are you doing? The person says, I'm busy. What does that, what does that do? What, what, what does that do to you, both as a listener and to the person who's saying it? That if you say you're busy, you feel busy. You always have enough time for everything you're doing. You just have to not have the attitude that you're busy. I think it's a terrible word to use. Yeah. It's like it's sort of just saying that that uh, you're busy or or I'm busy. Like it like activates something inside you. Yeah, exactly. And it's not healthy, and it's fictional. <clears throat> if you say you're busy, you'll feel busy. And do you do you feel like that that we need to feel busy? That or like I know we shouldn't feel busy or say that we're busy, but do you feel that there's a pressure to say that we're busy? Yeah, I think that it makes you feel important, but it's the it's a wrong value to carry around with you, I think. Yeah. And I, I want to be uh, very respectful of your time. So I really just had two more questions for you. One is about the idea of using neuroscience in theater and acting training. I find that this is becoming a, a growing field of really connecting the two together. And in the masterclass I took with you maybe about a year or and a half or so ago, uh, this was something that you talked about and uh, how actors could and directors and artists can use neuroscience in their work. What has been your experience with that? 
you, neuroscience is probably causing more cultural change than we realize. And so as a as an artist, it's important to study what's happening in the world. I mean, the the other area is like parallel universes. Those that what what science and and other art forms and psychology is discovering, string theory, all of these things, and neuroscience is at the head of it. This is where the big changes are happening in the world. And so, our job as artists is to find out how to live with those changes, how to actually create a social systems that are in harmony with those changes. The last time that happened in, in Western culture was around 1915 with the birth of uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, Brock and Picasso's uh, cubism, uh, Eisenstein's montage. All this happened at the same time. Einstein's uh, theory of relativity and special relativity, uh, uh, um, it went on. Uh, 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 Freud and Pavlov's breakthroughs in psychology. All of those created a complete change, which was translated in in theater as modernism. We're at another point of change where the digital environment and studies uh, breakthroughs in neuroscience and breakthroughs in 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 string theory, quantum physics, etc., are causing massive changes in the way we live. And so, our job in the theater is to figure out how to live with those changes. Therefore, it's important to study. Yeah, I'm a big believer that when you're studying theater, you're you're almost really studying everything to a certain degree, a very, very small degree, of course, but um, and, and that's very much in line with what you were saying, how you believe those pursuing theater should study a wide breadth of uh, subjects in their undergraduate years. And continue studying throughout their lives, really. Yeah, Lear the learning never stops, that's for sure. <laughs> my, my last question for you, and so much what I, I talk to um, about my guests on this podcast is um, the concept of genuine human relationships. And a lot of this, uh, what with what you were saying earlier, specifically with uh, actor training and actors training together in a company, uh, really resonated with me a lot. Uh, so really through your experience as a director working in the theater industry, what would you say is your definition of like a genuine human relationship? I, I don't trust the word genuine so much. I mean, it's um, it depends on the story you're telling. I mean, the way we live our lives depends on the story that we tell about our lives. So genuine is tricky. I, I mean, I guess if I wanted to get inside of the word genuine, I'd say um, try to be in the moment and hear what you hear and not impose your interpretations on it. Huh. Yeah. But genuine, genuine is a very tricky word because you're always presenting something to the world. Genuine, I guess you're genuine when you're a little baby and come out of your mother. That's genuine movement. But then, then there's fabrication of their stories. So I think what matters is your consciousness about the stories you're telling. And, and, and if, if, I guess if you'd say if they're not default stories and if you are awake to them, then they might be genuine. But I have trouble with that word genuine. Yeah, because I guess d depending on how you're presenting yourself to either a specific person or a specific group of people, that form of genuine will change depending on who you're talking to. Absolutely. And in the theater, theater is is about artifice. And you want to tell, who was it, Picasso who said, the truth through lies. You actually are creating lies that tell the truth. So artifice is a big part of what we do, and that is questionable when it comes to genuineness. We're, we're manipulating and rearranging and rearranging in order to create a feeling or a new insight that hopefully will be genuine, but it's not through being genuine that you get genuine. It's that you, you have to arrange things properly. Right. <laughs> You're making me uh, second guess this question that I'm going to be asking my guests <laughs> mm -hmm. with the, with genuine. That's, that's good. So, uh, and, and thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your story from 
when you started, you know, out as a young director, um, all the way through today with uh, the building of your company and all the work that you're doing. I, I really, truly appreciate you taking the time to uh, share with both me as well as our listeners. You're welcome. And before we sign off, I'm wondering if you could just let our listeners know where they could find out more about you and City Company. Uh, city.org is the best place to go. The website has all the info you need. Awesome. Great. I'll, I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. And thank you so much again. Great talking to you, Pat. And Bogart, everyone, was super excited to have her on the podcast and was so kind of her to devote some of her time to chat about her career as a theater director, as well as all the great work she is doing. I'm a true believer that theater is important now more than ever in this digital age we are living in. If you liked this podcast, please feel free to comment, share, subscribe, and send it to your friends if they think that they might be impacted by Anne's words of wisdom. Also, feel free to send in a voicemail if you'd like, if you have the Anchor app. I'd love to hear from you. And there's a possibility that I will publish your voicemail in the future. Also, if you'd like to support this podcast, please click the link in the show notes that supporting the podcast will allow me to continue making episodes, invite amazing guests on the show, and really just continue to provide a great show for you all. Thank you so much again to Ann Bogart for joining us, and I'll catch you all next time.